Welcome to Sojourner True. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Today, we focus on the climate crisis facing us all, which will impact every area of life on our planet. And Peterman, Executive Director of the Global Justice Ecology Project, joins us to discuss concerns over a planned release of genetically engineered trees. She breaks down to us why what seems like a good idea to some who say they want to save the American chestnut tree is not at all a good idea. Also, what is the Bridgetown agenda? What role did fossil fuel companies play in the recent UN conference on climate known as COP27? And what was the result? What are the worries and demands of countries most impacted by climate change coming out of the recent UN climate conference? This and more. We speak with environmental journalist Tina Gerhardt, who covered COP27 for The Nation magazine. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics, Alpha our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Christina Onestead. President Joe Biden has welcomed France's President Emmanuel Macron to the White House today. For centuries, we've come together, charted a course toward a world of greater freedom, greater opportunity, greater dignity, and greater peace. Stalwart friends in times of triumph and of trial, France and the United States will meet the future just as we always have, confident in our shared capacity, sustained by the strength of our shared values, and undaunted by any challenge that lies ahead. Although allies, France has opposed aspects of Biden's signature climate law that Macron says will have an enormous negative impact on European companies. It offers U.S. incentives that favor American-made climate technology, including electric vehicles. The House passed two pieces of legislation to end a strike by railroad workers, imposing a White House-negotiated union contract, then beefing it up with seven days of paid sick leave, a key railroad worker demand. Lawmakers said a strike would be a devastating blow to the nation's economy if the transportation of food, fuel, and other critical goods were disrupted. Christopher Martinez reports. Joint Resolution 100 includes a 24% pay raise by the year 2024, along with a $5,000 annual bonus and a cap on health insurance premiums. Four of the 12 unions rejected that agreement because it left out the main sticking point, paid sick leave. Hence, a second resolution. Democratic Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Then we will have a separate up or down vote to add seven days of paid sick leave to the tentative agreement. Several Democrats pointed out that railroad workers have been going to work, sometimes in hazardous conditions, while many Americans sheltered at home during the pandemic. Democrat Jesus Chuy Garcia of Illinois. There is one thing that the pandemic taught us. It's that we can't keep treating them like they're expendable. A rail strike is unthinkable, and so is a world where rail workers are forced to work, sick or penalized if they take a day off when they're ill. 
The two resolutions will go now to the narrowly divided Senate. The first resolution is the more likely to pass. The sick leave measure faces a tougher fight. Reporting for Pacifica Radio News KPFA, I'm Christopher Martinez. Attorney General Merrick Garland hailed the guilty verdict of five members of the extremist group the Oath Keepers for their role in the deadly January 6th Capitol siege this week. He also announced a lawsuit against the state of Mississippi over its water treatment failures yesterday during a press briefing. Edwin J. Vieira reports. Stuart Rhodes, the founder of the Oath Keepers, was found guilty of seditious conspiracy for his part in the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. Attorney General Merrick Garland said more must be done. As the verdict of this case makes clear, the department will work tirelessly to hold accountable those responsible for crimes related to the attack on our democracy on January 6, 2021. Garland added the Justice Department is working to uncover the legal missteps which led to the neglect of Jackson, Mississippi's water system. Communities of color, indigenous communities, and low-income communities often bear the brunt of these harms. As we work to fulfill our responsibility to keep the American people safe, to protect civil rights, we will continue to prioritize cases like this one that will have the greatest impact on communities most burdened by environmental harm. I'm Edwin J. Vieira for Pacifica Network and Public News Service. Abortion rights advocates say they'll rally at major cities across the U.S. today to mark the one-year anniversary of the Dobbs court hearing before the Supreme Court, which ultimately led to the overturning of abortion rights in the U.S. The group Rise Up for Abortion Rights says forced motherhood equals enslavement. Actions are planned in several major cities today, including New York, Chicago, San Francisco, Lansing, Atlanta, Honolulu, Austin, and outside the Supreme Court in Washington, D.C. Democrats in the House have a new team of leadership. Hakeem Jeffries of New York will be the party's first black leader. Each and every day, House Democrats committed to fighting hard for working families, middle class folks, those who aspire to be part of the middle class, young people, seniors, immigrants, veterans, the poor, the sick, the afflicted, the least, the lost, and the left behind. House Democrats fight for the people. That's our story. That's our legacy. That's our values. That's our commitment as we move forward. Get stuff done. Make life better for everyday Americans. Pete Aguilar of Southern California will be the party's caucus chair, making him the highest ranking Latino in Congress. And Catherine Clark of Massachusetts will be the Democratic whip. Also, for the first time, the party will not have a white man in a position of leadership. So far, though David Cicilline is vying for the fourth top post as assistant Democratic leader, citing the desire for an LGBTQ face in the team's leadership. Former President Barack Obama will be in Georgia today to rally support for incumbent Raphael Warnock in a runoff race against Republican challenger Herschel Walker. Today marks World AIDS Day to commemorate the millions of lives lost to the epidemic. Ahead of the day, the United Nations released a report called Dangerous Reality, warning it's not meeting its goals to eradicate AIDS by the year 2030. I'm Christina Onestead reporting for Pacifica Radio. Those were our news headlines. This is Margaret Prescott. We are going to start out our show today with our weekly Earth Watch. The American chestnut 
once a dominant species in eastern North U.S. forests, was decimated in the first half of the 20th century by logging and also a fungal blight referred to as chestnut blight. Researchers at the State University of New York College of Environmental Science and Forestry developed a genetically engineered GE blight-resistant American chestnut and hoped to win government approval for its unregulated release into the environment. In fact, the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service invited public comment on two draft documents regarding a petition by the State University of New York College of Environmental Science and Forestry to deregulate an American chestnut tree that has been genetically engineered for release into wild forests. Although the petition seeks to allow the release of a genetically engineered tree into the wild, this is something that has never before been done. And the long-term impacts of which are unknown, the USDA, they are only allowing 45 days ending on December 27th for scientists, experts, organizations, environmentalists, other concerned members of the public to read and comment both on its draft environmental impact statement and its draft pest risk assessment. Let's welcome Ann Peterman. Let me introduce her because she will break this down. She's been working on this issue for quite a while. She is the executive director of the Global Justice Ecology Project, which she co-founded way back in 2003. She's also the international coordinator of the campaign to stop GE trees and a founding board member of the Will Miller Social Justice Lecture Series. She has been involved in movements for forest protection and indigenous rights since 1990 and the international and national climate justice movements since 2004. She has played a key role in the global effort to stop the release of genetically engineered trees into the environment for several decades now. In 2008, she led a campaign demanding a global ban on GE trees that won an historic decision on GE trees from the UN Convention on Biological Diversity, warning countries of the dangers of GE trees and urging them to use a precautionary approach. And Peterman participated in the founding of several climate justice groups, including the Durban Group for Climate Justice in 2004, Climate Justice Now in 2007 in Bali, Indonesia, Climate Justice Action in Copenhagen, and the U.S. Just Climate Justice Alliance. She has traveled all over the world speaking to U.N. delegations, community groups alike, uh, about the social and ecological dangers of GE trees and industrial tree plantations, including their exacerbation of climate change. And generally, we know Anne for her work on a grassroots level, uh, working with frontline communities on the uh, really their efforts to protect the environment. And also, she has the Global Justice Ecology Project has partnered with Sojourner Truth. I think Anne might have been since 2009 or some such with our weekly Earth Minute and our weekly Earth Watch. And Peterman, 
thank you for all of your help and support. And we're delighted that you are able to join us today. Anne. Thank you very much, Margaret. And yes, it was 2009. It was uh, during the Copenhagen Climate uh, Summit that we started working together. And it's been a great partnership, I have to say. <laughs> really, I, I just can't believe it's it's been that long, but, uh, but it is. So, Anne, um, uh, you know, a lot of the justification for people who want this GE uh, American chestnut is that without it, uh, the American chestnut won't survive. This is really important. And therefore, they have to go ahead and release it into the wild. Uh, before we talk about the problems with the USDA only allowing 45 days, tell us what are the concerns? I mean, do they have an argument to say that this is what needs to happen? And if it is released, what are you worried about? What are the concerns? Sure. Um, the American chestnut was a dominant tree in eastern U.S. forest ecosystems until, um, as you mentioned at the beginning, uh, there was a combination of overlogging, massive overlogging that was happening, especially in the southern part of that range. Um, and then this introduced blight, this blight that came to North America around 1901 on a Japanese chestnut tree um, to which the American chestnuts had no or little resistance. Uh, and then, unfortunately, the um, overzealous activities of people trying to stop the spread of this blight to other chestnut trees resulted in an even greater devastation because there was massive logging of healthy trees to try to stop the fungus from moving. And so, you know, there is there could very likely have been, um, you know, resistance within the wild chestnut population if that had not been done. But because, you know, millions upon millions of chest healthy chestnuts were logged in the attempt to stop the blight, they also, you know, um, cut off the ability of the chestnut to adapt on its own. There are people still working on that, however, who are breeding remaining wild chestnuts, American chestnuts that have survived with each other in the hopes of getting a chestnut that is, in fact, naturally blight tolerant. That would be the ideal, right? Would be to bring back the wild American chestnut that is truly a wild American chestnut by breeding individuals that are, in fact, um, naturally blight resistant. But in the same, you know, in the same kind of vein of, of what happened back then with, you know, this disastrous impact on forests because of trying to stop this blight from advancing, we have the same same kind of mentality going on now with people who say that we can save the American chestnut by genetically engineering it and putting this blight tolerance trait, which actually comes out of a grass into this tree. You know, this is a transgenic, this is a transgenic um, uh, operation here where they've taken genes out of a completely unrelated species and put them into this tree in order to uh, convey blight tolerance in this tree. And now uh, in 2020, actually, the researchers who are doing this from the uh, Environmental Science and Forestry School at the University of, at the State University of New York in Syracuse um, actually filed a petition with the USDA to um, get permission to deregulate it. So it would basically they could send it out wherever they wanted to. It could be planted anywhere. There'd be no monitoring, no tracking, no way of knowing where this genetically engineered American chestnut is. And 
excuse me, the, the process has continued and now there's actually a public comment period, which is why we're mobilizing right now is to get people to, you know, plug in to submit some comments about what the USDA um, is planning to do, which is to approve this petition. The USDA has indicated that they think that would be just dandy to release these genetically engineered trees into wild forests, which, as you pointed out, has never been done anywhere ever before. Um, and especially not in the United States. Uh, but, you know, why don't we go ahead? We, we They seem to be confident that there won't be any impacts, even though there's actually no science, no science at all to indicate that there wouldn't be any impacts. There's no science to show what will happen with these trees in a few years, not to mention a few decades or even a couple of centuries, which American chestnuts are known to live over 200 years. So it's it's um, it's really bad science what's going on now uh, from the the um, overzealousness of the researchers to get these trees out there to the USDA completely um, ignoring its responsibility to make sure these things are safe and saying, yeah, it looks good. Let's go ahead and do this. Yeah, you know, and just just listening to this, I mean, it's so alarming on, on so many levels. Uh, one. I mean, so many of us, me included, a great lover of trees. I've been doing, you know, as just a lay person, um, whatever reading I can about uh, forests and about the interrelationship of trees, even under under the ground, right? And how they relate to each other, how they support each other. And the idea now of introducing what, Basically, even though they're saying it's an American chestnut, but as you say, it is uh, trans um, transgenic. Is that the word you use? A transgenic operation. Yes. So it seems as though it's kind of a, a new species in a way, because this is a grass being integrated into a tree. And who knows, as you say, they don't know what impact that would have in the system that forests have developed for thousands of years, right, um, in, in terms of their relationship with each other, their relationship with the environment. So one has to wonder why this push and why this approach, as opposed to putting resources into the natural way of doing it. As you say, there are some people who have been able to, um, you know, to uh, protect these trees uh, from this uh, fungus or from this virus. Um, and Peterman, one has to wonder what is really behind that. I mean, we've seen what has happened with the, the GE seeds, right? And the the havoc that that has uh, caused on the environment and Peterman. Yeah, the what's behind it is, is exactly the concern. So when the petition was filed with USDA to deregulate this particular strain of this genetically engineered American chestnut, which is called the Darling 58, over one of the major benefactors that funded its research. Um, we call it the D58 for short. This uh, genetically engineered American chestnut was only grown in outdoor field trials for three years when they submitted this petition for its deregulation. So um, they really, as I said, have no idea what the, what the long-term impacts in forests will be if this thing is released. So yes, your question, why would they be doing this? What What is the point? Um, of course, they argued they want to bring back the American chestnut. But as you point out, this 
is it actually a an American chestnut tree? It's some kind of um, facsimile of an American chestnut tree that could do many weird things that American chestnuts never did. So um, who is behind it is has been something that we've done a lot of looking at. And in fact, in the 90s, there were companies and company representatives who talked about the American chestnut as a potential test tree or a poster tree for biotechnology in forestry because they were experiencing um, a lot of pushback from, from the public. And over the, the subsequent decades, there's been an enormous backlash of public opposition against the idea of genetically engineered trees, especially industrial trees for plantations like eucalyptus and pine and so on. So they wanted to find a tree that they could bring back, quote unquote, with genetic engineering um, that would be a conservation quote unquote initiatives. So they they found the American chestnut and they decided that would be their poster tree to try to win over public opinion. And that is exactly what they've done. So Duke Energy has put in an enormous amount of money into this. The Forest Health Initiative, which is another industry conglomeration. Monsanto has been involved. Arborgen, which is um, one of the world's largest genetically engineered tree producers, has been involved. Um, you know, it's it's really been an industry push to get this tree um, out of the laboratory and into the forests as a way, as I said, to convince the public that GE trees are really beneficial. They can help the climate. They can help biodiversity. But, you know, this could be a total disaster for forests if it is released into the environment, into forest ecosystems. It could have a devastating impact on wildlife that depend on the chestnuts, on wildlife that are, you know, live in the forest. We, there's just no way to know. They did some studies, some risk assessment studies um, that are in the petition. And when they did the pollinator feeding study to see what the impacts would be of feeding pollen from these genetically engineered chestnuts to bumblebees, they didn't even use genetically engineered tree pollen. They used non-GMO um, uh, American chestnut pollen mixed with the uh, enzyme that's been engineered into the tree. You know, it's like these these uh, these researchers don't even understand what biotechnology is. It's not just mixing stuff together in a little dish and you you know you paste it on a leaf. You know, it's it's actually introducing DNA from an unrelated species through a you know a highly technical um, process into the cells into the dna of the tree it's i don't know it's 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 mind-boggling the things that that these folks do and imagine that it's it's not um potentially fraught with complications risks and dangers yeah and and i mean remember when they said well the ge uh seeds g plants was gonna uh you know um, halt world hunger and, you know, all kinds of, of reasons were being used. And, and what it, I find also, uh, scary is that if they succeed in getting away with this, to me, it really is, sets the stage for a justification of more, uh, transgenic stuff, of more GE, you know, GE, not only trees, but God knows what else, because as you say, it's, it's, you know, selling it to the public, you know, who doesn't love the American chestnut? And this is the way, this is the way to, um, 
you know, to help it. And one quick thing, too, for somebody like myself, you know, dealing with, you know, pollution and the impact on your lungs, et cetera, who knows um, when you're inhaling that pollen, uh, not only for people, but also for the critters um, who, you know, who come in touch with it. But Ann Peterman, for people who are concerned about this, who want to find more about it and who want to find out more about the Global Justice Ecology Project, what should they do? Well, I'm going to direct people first to our public comment um, action alert, because we really want people to submit comments, letting the USDA know that this is a terrible idea. And that is at stopgetrees.org stop-ge-trees. So stopgetrees.org slash stop-ge-trees. People could find the action alert and that'll give you all the details you need on how to submit comments, some sample comments that you could take a look at, some background information, our, our white paper that we wrote on the issue. So there's lots of good information there. And if they want to know more about Global Justice Ecology Project, you can just Google Global Justice Ecology Project or just go to globaljusticeecology.org and you'll find all the different things that we do there, including a lot of work on climate change. So I'm very happy that you've got Tita on as your next guest. Right. And and, uh, and you and all of you at Global Justice Ecology Project, we have to thank you because you all are long distance runners. You have been doing this. You've been staying on top of it and you don't fall into the, the trap of these false solutions uh, that are being put forward, including that of GE trees. So, and Peterman, I'm sure we'll be talking with you again soon. Thank you so very much for joining us. Thank you, Anne. What we're going to do, our weekly Earth Minute is also back. So we'll go to the weekly Earth Minute. The international organization Biofuel Watch released a new report on Monday titled Carbon Capture from Biomass and Waste Incineration, Hype versus Reality. The report is a deep dive on the climate change mitigation strategy called BECS, which stands for Bioenergy with Carbon Capture and Storage. Under the BECS scheme, the carbon released by burning trees or waste for electricity is supposedly captured and stored in order to allegedly make the technology carbon neutral or even carbon negative. The Biofuel Watch report analyzes numerous biomass facilities that are supposed to be capturing CO2. They conclude that the hype around Bex is a ridiculous, misguided, and dangerous distraction that actually derives from and primarily benefits fossil fuel industries. The CO2 supposedly captured from biomass plants and waste incinerators has in fact either been vented to the atmosphere, sold as fertilizer, or most absurdly in the case of a waste incinerator carbon project in Japan, used in the production of anti-wrinkle skin cream. For the Earth Minute and the Sojourner Truth Show, this is Steve Taylor from Global Justice Ecology Project. And that was our weekly Earth Minute. Okay, this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Um, as we now uh, go into the next segment, which is basically doing a, a kind of a, a wrap, if you would call it that, of the uh, COP27, the recent uh, UN conference on the environment. What we would like to do before we go to our station break, we would like to share some words with you presented by the representative of Tuvalu, which is located in the South Pacific. It was a, a speech to the 
COP27, two governments delivered by Simon Lalonio. And um, the, his title is the permanent representative of Tuvalu on behalf of the Pacific Islands Forum. And as you could well imagine, those islands in the Pacific, like my home island in Barbados and other Caribbean islands, are very, very much under threat as a result of global warming. So let's hear what he had to say near the closing of the conference. On behalf of EOSIS, I am, and I believe all of us are so relieved, relieved that we can now go home and catch up on lost sleep, but also relieved that we have finally delivered an historic landmark decision through the loss and damage fund. It has been long time coming, three long decades, and we have finally delivered climate justice. We have finally responded to the call of hundreds of millions of people across the world to help them address loss and damage. So this is a defining COP in that respect. However, it is regrettable that we haven't achieved an equal success in our attempt to achieve the 1.5 target. It is regrettable that we haven't got strong language included in the cover decision before us on phasing out fossil fuel. It is regrettable that we haven't got text on peaking of emissions before 2025. It is regrettable that we haven't managed to get stronger mention of methane reduction, emissions reductions target. Friends, and you yourself, Mr. President, has many a times last week and this week reminded us of the calamities, the devastation, lives being lost across the globe because of climate change and sea level rise. However, we haven't responded sufficiently to that call by raising ambition. And that is our deep regret and disappointment. And it has made Shamo Sheikh, regrettably, a missed opportunity for a truly successful COP. Friends, we have much work ahead of us beginning from tomorrow and leading on to 
Dubai for COP28. And I call on everyone to continue our journey to achieve that moving target of 1.5. We have heard the majority of parties, over 80 countries attending this COP, voicing their concern and support for stronger mitigation action. But that is not reflected in the cover decision before us. And that is our challenge for the next 12 months leading to Dubai. That I call on friends, let us work towards that 1.5 target come COP28. I brought with me in my delegation five young youth representatives, and I bring up a picture of them. And some of you may have seen and witnessed them performing in the halls, corridors of this facility. The purpose I brought them was to demonstrate the rich cultural heritage of our people, our community in the Pacific, that we do not want to compromise their future. And we need to work hard now so we can leave a legacy as good as we have had. So friends, I call on everyone. We are on this canoe together and journey together to achieve our 1.5 by COP28. Thank you, Mr. President. Alrighty, and so you just heard the representative, the permanent mission of Tuvalu, which is located in Oceana, which is in the South Pacific, addressing COP27. All right, what we're going to do now is we're going to take a short station break, and then when we return, we will be speaking with Tina Gerhardt, environmental journalist who covers international climate negotiations, and she covered the UN Conference on Climate COP27 for The Nation magazine, and we have done a series with her. Stay with us. We'll be right back. You're listening to Sojourner Truth with host Margaret Prescott. Okay, welcome back to Sojourner Truth. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. We also want to welcome all of the Pacifica listeners of the other Pacifica flagship stations, as well as our affiliate stations. We definitely want to welcome them. And uh, this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Our handle on Instagram and Twitter, at So True Radio. And we are heard nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud. And in the U.S., we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in that great state of Vermont. And internationally, we would like to give a shout out to our 
SoundCloud listeners in the UK. And we are now going to continue our ongoing coverage on the environment. I mean, the environmental crisis is so, you know, it's freaking people out. It's freaking young people, everybody out. Because for those of us, unless you are a global warming denier, you have some sense of the severity of the issue. And uh, no matter what we are working on uh, for social justice, racial justice, economic justice, all of that is impacted and will be impacted by what is going on with the environment. So what I'd like to do now is to welcome our guest, Tina Gerhardt. welcome her back. She is an environmental journalist who covers international climate negotiations, domestic energy policy, and sea level rise. Her work has been published by the American Prospect, Grist, The Progressive, The Nation, Sierra, and The Washington Monthly. Uh, Tina Gerhardt is the author of the forthcoming book, Sea Change, an Atlas of Islands and a Rising Ocean, which discusses the impacts of sea level rise on islands around the world. It's coming out with the University of California Press in May of 2023. Tina, welcome back. Thanks, Margaret. It's great to be with you. Yes, yeah, so good of you to, uh, you know, to join us again, Tina. And we've been reading your work and posting your work, but. What I'd like to do now before um, we get into, because there are still a couple of things I want to discuss about what is called the the Bridgetown um, agenda coming out of the capital of Barbados. But I want to talk a bit more about the bad news that came out of of COP27, as you referred to it in an article uh, you wrote, um, having to do with... um, the commitments of holding temperature at 1.5, uh, which didn't happen, and also the impact of the presence, a strong presence of the fossil fuel industry, uh, Tina. Yeah, thanks. I think last week when I was on, we talked a bit about the good news. So, so the bad news coming out of COP27 is, I mean, the good news that was a, a historic shift was was the agreement on the loss and damage facility. And the bad news is that there were no agreement made uh, in terms of commitments to holding temperatures to 1.5 degrees. So so there's no actions that have been taken. There are no actions that have been outlined as to how we're going to ensure 1.5 degrees Celsius. And that's a temperature that's really important, especially for low-lying islands. The other ones, they're predominantly but not exclusively in the Pacific. The other ones would be the Republic of Marshall Islands, Kiribati in the Pacific, and then the Maldives in the Indian Ocean. And it's 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 the mantra, 1.5 to, to stay alive is a mantra that was started by Pacific Islanders specifically because that's the temperature. If we go beyond it, these islands are going to be totally at risk. So so no actions were taken to keep temperature to 1.5. And when I say no actions were taken or no commitments were made, specifically COP27 failed to phase out fossil fuels. Um Last year, phase-out of fossil fuels was in a draft document at the 11th hour that was changed from a phase-out to a phase-down by India. Um, This year, the phase-down remained rather than a phase-out. 
And uh, additionally, the fossil fuels was changed to uh, coal. And those, you know, that's a really big issue because you need to have all fossil fuels. You need to have a phase out of all fossil fuels. And I think in some ways, maybe this really shouldn't surprise because this year, uh, according to um, a report that was released during COP27, by Global Witness, there were over 600 fossil fuel lobbyists at COP27. I mean, somebody referred to this as having people selling tobacco being at a convention focused on cancer. And this this 600 fossil fuel lobbyists, it's a 25% increase over last year. So there was a really heavy presence on their part. And there was that was coupled with a really strong push by fossil fuel nations such as Saudi Arabia, Iran, and Russia um, to make sure that fossil fuels were not phased out. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's just unbelievable that you and and you heard um, from the representative Tina um, from uh, Tuvalu, and thank you for sending on uh, that link to us. His strong feelings about that. On the one hand, saying, "Okay, we've made some progress with the loss and damage fund." I I am going to want to talk a little bit more about that, though because a commitment was made, but, you know, what the mechanism is going to be to make that happen is another story. Um, tell us a bit about who, uh, we know that the fossil fuel um, industry, the lobbyists were there. In your article, it says a 25% increase, right, of the fossil fuel uh, presence at this conference. But tell us about the countries who, in a way, were part of this, uh, you know, um, part of really the fossil fuel lobby, right? And also the the pressures, the either economic pressures or what seems to me like paying off Egypt. You know, Egypt was the host country um, in terms of, of, of fossil fuels. And I remembered an earlier conversation we had, team. I think it was a representative, maybe from South Africa, um, who was complaining that Western countries are really trying to push um, uh, nations on the continent, African nations, to be even more involved uh, with fossil fuels. But Tina, tell us about those those countries and, and some of um, what happened that perhaps helped to influence Egypt's position, Tina. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think um, some of the, some of the countries that were involved in in terms of the the machinations, and uh, how the the COP twenty seven you know agreement finally worked out, or what the results from it were, meaning no call for a phase out of fossil fuels. Some of the countries that were key players there um, were the U.S. and and these are usual suspects, and were also the EU. Um, oil change international in in 2022. I think it's important not to always have the focus on the Middle East. You know, I'd mentioned Saudi Arabia, Iran earlier. Egypt as a host was problematic, but you know, according to Oil Change International, in in 2022, the U.S. was followed only by Saudi Arabia in permitting the most oil and gas expansion. I mean, just. Just this week, um, you know, Biden announced that that more of Alaska was going to be made available um, for uh, for oil leasing. So I think we we should include ourselves. The U.S. should include itself 
as a nation that is heavy in producing oil and also in fostering the oil industry's interests. Um, the U.S. and the EU were really involved in in stymieing or preventing this kind of strong phase out of fossil fuels. And one of the things that they uh, shifted the the language to, and Canada's involved here too, China as well, one of the things that they changed the language to, I mentioned the phase down rather than the phase out, which happened last year. But they also mentioned this year the phase down of unabated coal power. So they snuck in this word unabated. And that's really important because the term unabated opens the door for carbon capture and storage. Um, and that allows the use of, of coal to really continue. And this, this includes nations like Canada, China, and Saudi Arabia, who were opposed to the inclusion of all oil and natural gas of all fossil fuels. But unabated um, opens the door for carbon capture and storage, as I mentioned. And that's important. Um, there's a lot of people who think carbon capture storage can can be some sort of a solution. Basically, it's it doesn't exist on a scale that can function yet to, to capture the emissions from producing and using coal. Um, it doesn't exist on a scale that can function yet. It's extremely expensive to scale it up. And so for those two reasons, it's really not viable as an option. And I think the most important thing about carbon capture storage is the fact that it allows the fossil fuel industry to continue to emit. And that's the thing that really needs to happen. I think if I were to forecast what COP28 next year is going to focus on, is going to be a strong push for a phase out of fossil fuels. I have absolutely no hope that that's going to be successful. But again, as I think I probably said last week, I think the synergy between the countries from the global south pushing for these types of things this year it was loss and damage. I think next year I, I would just forecast that it's going to be for inclusion of language of phase out of fossil fuels. The synergy between the nations from the global south pushing for this type of thing and the direct action outside is absolutely crucial for, for getting some change going. Right. And, you know, it's uh, Tina, again, just to remind our audience, our guest is Tina Gerhardt. She is uh, an environmental uh, journalist, and she's also an author of a book that's coming up entitled uh, Sea Change, an Atlas of Islands in a Rising Ocean. It'll be out in the spring of uh, 2023. And she covered the recent UN conference uh, for the Nation magazine. And her, her work has been published in a number of, um, of, of print media in addition to the Nation. Uh, and what we're discussing right now is what may be Shocking to some, but not surprising to others, is that the recent UN conference, um, the they have not uh, outlined as to how to ensure the the 1.5 to stay alive is, is is the call, and also this UN conference did not call for a phase out of fossil uh, fuels, and there was a, a strong presence of the fossil fuel lobby. Um, Tina, just, you know, uh, agreeing and, and uh, glad that you're undersc underscored the countries involved um, in promoting uh, fossil fuels. And I'm glad you mentioned um, the President uh, Biden um, 
with the U.S. agreeing to auction off uh, close to a million acres off of Alaska for oil drilling. And this was a, a compromise for uh, Senator Joe Manchin because the Democrats were not able to get the Inflation Reduction Act through uh, without bending uh, to Joe Manchin, um, who is very much in bed. <laughs> uh, those of us who've been following even the coverage we've done on the child tax credit and other issues uh, to the fossil fuel industry himself involved in the uh, coal, he and his family in the coal industry. And by the way, with the election coming up in Georgia next week for, for uh, the new senator, if um, the Democrats prevail there, uh, Senator Manchin will not have that um, bludgeon to hold over Democrats in order of getting um, things through the Senate. But Tina, it really was disappointing on the one hand for the Biden administration to fold in this way. Environmentalists are really upset about it. And this on the same, uh, well, not the same day, but uh, today, the um, Washington Post, not today, yesterday, the Washington Post reported that Biden has now committed to protecting public lands in Nevada and honoring tribes in Nevada and uh, a huge swath of land that will get protection. So, Tina, it does seem as though you win some and you lose some. I mean, at the UN, at COP27, here you have some success um, with, for the first time, loss and damages getting on the agenda, something a lot of the countries in the global south were pushing for. And then on the downside, you have this, um, basically, to me, the success of the fossil fuel lobby of keeping a call for a phase down of fossil fuels uh, from that. And Tina, I, I wonder if you want to uh, mention that. And I just one other thing too, Tina, I want, um, you know, you may be aware of this, is that the Barbados Prime Minister, my Prime Minister, uh, Mia Motley, um, has been you know, really good. A lot of people can testify at, in, in these um, UN conferences, not only on climate, but on others. Um, so there is that and the, you know, the Bridgetown agenda. On the other hand, you have Exxon that is now trying to um, and planning on doing oil drilling in the Caribbean Sea um, off of Guyana where a, a lot of oil, you know, was discovered mm -hmm. under the under the sea there. And a lot of um, environmentalists and activists in Guyana are very, very upset about it. And we don't know where she stands in relation to it. You know what I mean? So there seems to be this kind of push and pull. On the one mm -hmm. hand, you win something, but on the other hand, you kind of let some of these fossil fuel um, lobby and industry get a pass. Tina? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the real problem, I mean, there's so many problems, but, but the, I think one of the problems with COP27 is certainly having the fossil fuel industry there. Um, it is a consensus decision making process, which has, you know, people ask, what are the good things about COP27? It's been going on for 30 years, you haven't gotten, you know, achieved the results, you know, all these, all this money spent getting people there, and all the CO2 emissions expended, it is um, one of the only forums, it is, I, I mean, it is the only forum that's global that gathers countries from around the world to focus on the topic of addressing the climate crisis. 
And because of that consensus decision-making process, countries look at one another, have equal say. I mean, I'm not going to say that I believe that. I, I think the money politics that plays out there is very real. Um, but I think that that's an important part of the process there is that that people in the U.S., John Kerry is our current representative, is forced to listen to the stories from uh, delegates from frontline nations and the kinds of disasters that they're experiencing in their home countries. So, so those power dynamics there are real, but I would say that's an upside. But you do lose, you win some, you lose some. Um, and certainly the presence of the fossil fuel industry and then, of course, the economic system that we are currently living in is are two of the the huge problems. I mean, the reason that the U.S. and the EU pushed so hard against setting up a mechanism for loss and damages, and haven't paid um, the monies that they owe to the the, the global South in terms of adaptation. Uh, I mean, certainly in terms of loss and damage, they don't want to be on the hook, right? It's a liability issue. If they say that they are responsible for historical emissions, that opens the door for endless amounts of demands for funds that that rightly so nations from the global south are demanding. Yeah. And, you know, looking looking at the clock, you know, you think you have time and then you run out of time, um, uh, Tina. But, you know, I think what I'd like to do in terms of the Bridgetown agenda, where basically um, it calls for a rehauling of the, you know, IMF, those institutions that were set up in um, uh, Bretton Woods. I think Bretton Woods is just a place in New Hampshire where this meeting was was held in the IMF and the um, the World Bank um basically came out of it or at least uh, uh, an out uh, 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 an institution that's connected to the world bank and I'm, i i would like to hear what economists some economists have to say about what's being proposed and the, the way we'll do it this way is because we we do have to wrap here and i know i had promised that we would talk a little bit more about that uh tina but when we're able to get some economists together and some environmentalists together, we hope that you will be part of that conversation with us. And we so appreciate all of the time that you have given us in breaking down um, the COP27 and what happened there. Tina, thank you so very much. It's been great to be on with you. Thanks, Margaret. I'm afraid we are way out of time. I'd like to thank all of our guests and uh, the Global Justice Ecology Project that we work with for weekly Earth Watch as well as our weekly Earth Minute. We'd like to thank Alicia Vargas, our assistant producer. Today's show produced by me, that's Margaret Prescott. I'd like to thank the engineer also for today. Stay tuned for more programming coming up. Sojourner Truth will be back on the air tomorrow. Thank you for listening. You all stay well and safe. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Thank you.